This is Dr. David Pomeroy, your host on ADHD Focus. I wanted to remind you that the show is not intended to be a recommendation for diagnosis or treatment of any condition for any specific person. Please consult your mental health professional or doctor managing your ADHD or mental health issues about any diagnosis or treatment-related information that you hear on the show. Refer your ADHD provider to the show if he or she would like more information. Today, um, we've got a great program about girls and women with ADHD. My guest is Steve Hinshaw, a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley and professor of psychiatry at UC San Francisco. He's authored a number of books, one of them, The ADHD Explosion with Richard Scheffler. That was in 2014. And Another Kind of Madness, Journey Through the Stigma and Hope of Mental Illness in 2017. He also has been carrying on a longitudinal study of girls with ADHD, which is the Berkeley Girls with ADHD study, the largest study of girls with this condition, and also at 16 years and counting. His books and publications can be found at stephenhinshawauthor.com and of course the titles of the books and his website will also be in the print introduction to the podcast. Steve, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on. So let's dive right into um, one question is what does ADHD look like in girls and how is that different than it may show up in boys? Well, that's one of the $64 jillion questions, and we'll, we'll get to it. I'll start by saying that back in the day in grad school, some decades ago, I learned, as everybody else did, that, of course, it was then called hyperactivity rather than yeah. ADD or ADHD. Well, this is a boy condition. Girls really don't get hyperactivity or, or, or become yeah. ADD. They, they, if they... If they have problems like this, it must be anxiety, perhaps depression, or, or a conduct problem, or a learning problem. So we had the myth that ADHD is dominantly, if not exclusively, a male uh, province, if you will. Now, it is true, the rule of thumb, before the age of 10, the common neurodevelopmental disorders, learning problems, autism spectrum disorders, ADHD, Tourette's, early onset conduct disorder do have a male predominance. The Y chromosome confers in utero uh, maleness and uh, the male embryo and fetus are flooded with testosterone and other androgens and that actually slows brain development and makes boys at risk for a number of adverse events early in life. So. The actual prevalence before adulthood is probably two and a half or three boys to every girl with a legitimate diagnosis of ADHD. Mm -hmm. Autism is probably closer to four to five to one. Aggressive conduct disorder is six or seven to one. So there's some truth to the the, the presumption that, that males are more afflicted and affected. On the other hand, to say that girls don't get ADHD is simply wrong. Absolutely. Uh, our longitudinal study and others have, have definitively shown. So yeah. what's similar and what's different, right? Is that, I think that was your kind of key question. 
Yeah, and certainly in you know, the people I've seen, well, the inattentive is much more common presentation in girls. So it's an interesting uh, question here. If you go to epidemiology, you look in the community, the inattentive type is the most common type in both boys and girls because of this thing called compulsory education. The human brain yes. evolved to learn to read and sit still for long periods of time in, in early childhood. And so uh, kids who have the genetic predisposition to not be too focused and organized will show up with ADHD. And at the same time, girls more than boys tend to have this predominantly inattentive form, even though in most clinics, the kids who get referred, both boys and girls, the kids with the combined presentation, they've got a lot of inattention mm -hmm. and organization and hyperactivity impulsivity. So it's, it's an error to say that girls only get the inattentive form and just about all boys get the combined hyperactive impulsive oh, yeah. inattentive form. But relatively more girls than boys have this predominantly inattentive form. So what this means is that if you're not focused and organized and really struggling with academic material and you can't understand the teacher's three or four part directions, but you're not otherwise jumping out of your seat or terribly behavioral impulsive, right. you're a girl, you're suffering in silence and people don't recognize until middle school or high school when the academic problems really burst on the scene. So there is a tendency for girls to get underdiagnosed in those crucial early elementary grades when early intervention could make a big difference. And one of the uh, docs here in the area um, did some work interviewing kids with ADD and he interviewed some of the girls and said, you know, do you daydream in class? And they said, oh yeah, all the time. Would the teacher know it? No, I'm not stupid. I'm looking at her. <laughs> right, again. Teachers in some ways may be, and uh, we all have to give credit to teachers with many kids in a class and not oh, yeah. supports and low salaries. If a kid isn't being disruptive, the teacher uh, says a Hail yeah. Mary and let, let's, let's attend to the kids who are really out of their seats. So there's a tendency for kids with this purely inattentive form of, of ADHD to not get noticed until it's, it's really late in the game. And girls would be overrepresented in that group. Mm -hmm. um, so there, uh, one question I had, um, and may, I guess we'll get to this in a little bit, um, so I am going to skip that for now, but the, the presenting complaint then in girls, uh, particularly in teen girls, if there isn't that hyperactive part, um, maybe depression, maybe anxiety, um, yeah. kind of stress burnout uh, yeah. and then they may or may not try to cope with that in a number of ways. That's right. So uh, let's go back into childhood for a moment. Girls with ADHD, just like boys, especially if they've got a lot of impulsive symptoms as well, can be ornery and their parents start to fight fire mm -hmm. with fire and you get oppositional even conjugal symptoms, boys are more likely to show those than girls, but girls can. There's roughly the same one in five or one in four girls as well as boys 
who present with ADHD and also have a reading or math disorder. So that's uh -huh. way above chance. These, these may be linked. But over time, when a girl graduates, if you will, from elementary to middle and then high school and is still struggling with inattention but may not be as noticeable because she's not as impulsive, mm -hmm. and girls are highly social and often more compliant than boys, and they want to do well. So yep. they're studying many hours. They're feeling that there's something wrong with them. They're stupid or they're lazy, which many people have called them. We mm -hmm. know that starting at age 11 and 12, girls rocket ahead of boys overall, whether you've got yep. ADHD or not, in terms of anxiety and depression. And if you're a girl with ADHD, worried about self-image and worried about your academic competence and trying to cope, anxiety and depression, and as we have found in our own longitudinal work, a very pronounced tendency towards self-injury, even suicidal ideation and attempts, uh, is a hallmark of, of too many girls with ADHD. So on average, boys with ADHD tend to, when they hit adolescence, be on a path, many of them, certainly not all, towards juvenile hall and, and serious aggression and substance abuse. Girls with ADHD may have those same trajectories, but much more than boys show anxiety, depression, self-injury, and uh, for a period during adolescence, uh, impulsive symptoms of eating and bulimia and binge eating. Mm -hmm. So the developmental pathways that boys and girls differ in in general are even more accentuated when you add ADHD to the mix. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd certainly I think uh, this just occurred to me, boys maybe it's more acceptable to do sports, basketball, football, whatever, where they're um, a lot more activity, though uh, certainly out here in Washington, I think in California as well, um, there's so much soccer and girls' leagues that there's that kind of uh, outlet, I yep. guess. Um, but for boys, it may be more significant as far as their hyperactivity part. Right. And an interesting kind of sideline here, although in terms of predicting outcome, it, it moves to the forefront, not the sideline. We know from our, we run summer research camps we have for years for boys with ADHD, and then as part of my NIH-funded research, we started doing this 20 years ago for girls with ADHD. And one of the things you can do in a summer camp when the kids have never met one another previously mm -hmm. is with sensitivity and confidentially do interviews every week to see who's friends with whom and who likes whom ah. and who really wants to avoid the kids. These are called sociometric interviews to get a sense of friendships and peer status. In our programs for boys, boys with ADHD tended to get rejected by their peers, both their peers with ADHD and their typically developing our comparison group of peers uh, at high rates. But our girls with ADHD because girls put such a premium on social relationships and uh -huh. verbally attuned and making eye contact. We're twice as likely as our boys in the boys' programs to reject other girls with ADHD. Wow. And we further found that such peer rejection, both at our summer camps and then as measured by middle school teachers who are pretty accurate in detecting who's, who's on the ins and who's on the outs socially. Yeah, yeah. Those factors, so you get ADHD in childhood, you get peer rejection in later childhood and adolescence, 
and that's a strong predictor of the likelihood for a girl with ADHD to engage by early adulthood in NSSI, non-suicidal self-injury, cutting, burning, etc., and actual suicide attempts. So the peer hmm. problems, I mean, ADHD stereotypically is you don't do well in school. It's kind of a learning issue. That's true. But the social and interpersonal yeah. impacts of ADHD can't be um, overemphasized enough. They're really important as well. Yeah, and, and certainly the whole social... Um, acceptance is big in middle school I don't know any adult who would want to repeat grade six through eight um, and that's hard enough without the ADHD and it's, right. it's interesting to me that most adults if they're asked about it would say yeah I was felt I was different I never fit in um, and then of course you get these repeated messages that home from teachers and everybody else you aren't trying hard enough you're lazy you're dumb which certainly knocks self-esteem right out as well well yeah what's the matter with you as opposed to realizing that uh, there are differences in attentional style some people yeah. are very reflective some people are uh, attentive to anything on the blip of the radar screen on the horizon and in evolutionary times uh, when you think about it, it's probably good for any species to have some diversity, and it was probably good in hunter-gatherer days to have some very careful yeah. individuals and some more impulsive individuals who might <laughs> have detected where the next hunt was going to be. On the other hand, if you're super inattentive and impulsive and you've only got several arrows and you miss, miss the kill, yeah. then the tribe goes hungry for the week. So there's this constant question of, how much is biological? And we know that the genetic predisposition for being super inattentive and super impulsive is, is quite high, higher than most people yeah. think. On the other hand, that interacts with compulsory education and having only one way to learn. Mm -hmm. I don't believe the way some people do, perhaps, that if we just had open classrooms or kids could... Uh, stand up all the time and never have to sit, we would eliminate ADHD. No, no, I there don't think so There are some individual differences that are going to play out regardless of environment. On the other hand, insisting on one style of learning, if one-room schoolhouse, uh, or one way to get to the top of the heap, which yep. is to sit still your whole childhood, doesn't reflect the diversity of learning styles that kids have. So it's both biology and context that sure. really shape the outcomes of people with ADHD. Um, and in terms of the, what we talked about a little bit, the risk factors for girls developing much more serious kinds of things in terms of the non-suicidal self-harm or the suicidal ideation. Um, what's the, I guess, intervention or evaluation that right. the physician or you know you got to go see a counselor you're depressed what do you do then as far as um, the full evaluation as opposed right. to well you're depressed and we'll measure your PHQ and see how your medicines do um, what are the cues or clues I should say for a clinician, for a parent, for a counselor to look for that may uh, 
bring up ADHD? So this is a, a, a really important question. Still in our country, the standard, unfortunately, is for all too many kids, 10 or 12 minutes in a general pediatrician's office or yep. for an adult in a general practitioner's office without the developmental history or the norm-based rating scales, the things that take a couple of hours to make a thorough diagnosis. And that's why we get both underdiagnosis and overdiagnosis, frankly. Yep. We, we know how to do it well. We don't in, in reimburse it through insurance well enough, not enough. Oh, no. Yeah. There, there's, people are yeah. trained in how to do it. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So back to your question, though. What, what should we look for? Let me review a few of the findings from the the B gals, the Berkeley girls with ADHD longitudinal study about this very uh, difficult outcome of NSSI, non-suicidal self-injury uh, and suicide, suicidal behavior, which we have found in an alarming percentage of girls with ADHD. So number one, girls who are purely inattentive have a lot of learning problems later on and social problems, but on average, don't tend to be at a severe risk for these forms of self-harm, as do girls who are pretty darn impulsive, just like mm -hmm. a lot of boys have ADHD when they're young. So more of the Number, combined type. That's right, the combined type or combined alcohol presentation. Number two, we know that, except in cases of extreme neglect or deprivation, bad parenting doesn't cause ADHD. Yeah. It's kind of a myth. On the other hand, Parents, biological parents, who may have some of the symptoms themselves, whether diagnosed or not, mm -hmm. takes kind of a super parent to parent a kid with ADHD well. And if you're somewhat impulsive and somewhat temperamental and don't balance the, the budget well, it's kind yep. of fire with fire. So parents may inadvertently not cause but prolong or promote ADHD or what we call maintain it. Yeah. The arguments, the ineffective discipline. So... We found with our girls that parents who are highly stressed in that parenting role and feel that they're inadequate parents, that's another trigger. Number three, yep. those percentage, a certain percentage of our girls in our sample had received, either at home or outside the home, physical abuse, sexual abuse, or neglect, usually in hmm. home neglect. When you combine the genes predisposing to ADHD with those forms of maltreatment, one in three of such girls had made a serious suicide attempt by the age of wow. So it's very interesting. We know that ADHD, as I mentioned a moment ago, is highly heritable. Genes matter a lot for its expression, just like mm -hmm. bipolar disorder. Genes matter 85% for the expression of bipolar disorder. But in both bipolar disorder and in ADHD, early trauma exacerbates the risk. The suicide yep. risk is high for people with bipolar disorder. If you've been traumatized early, it's even higher. And our mm -hmm. girls with ADHD, despite the genetics underlying ADHD, if they've received trauma, their rates go up substantially. So it's not genes or environment, it's the combination oh, sure. that we think sure. is quite, quite crucial, right? One of the, the uh, I'm going to bring up one thing that may be a clue to look a little further, particularly if there's depression and maybe some school problems is uh, divorced uh, parents yeah. and I yeah. certainly see a lot of uh, families that are split families um, whether one or the other parents 
had ADHD or one of the problems that goes along with it. Um, but that's another trauma to any kid. Um, it, it's a trauma to any kid. It's one of these adverse experiences, the ACEs that are so much in the news these days. As being, We know that genes are involved in many serious mental disorders. We also know that adverse environments are too. And again, it's not either or, it's both and. Mm-hmm. And then sort of number four back to my list, as I said a few moments ago, if you're a girl with ADHD and you're really having problems interpersonally, and a lot of girls have mm-hmm. really kind of thrown you out of a peer group, this is another factor both in childhood and adolescence that predict and mediate this risk for self-injury. So it's a combination of the early impulsivity, difficult events at home, peer rejection, and continuing problems in regulating your impulses that make, and for so many, I mean, rates of cutting and self-injury are approaching epidemic for all teens these days, especially girls. But for girls with ADHD, whose self-esteem is wavering, who may feel partially responsible for the conflict or, or turmoil at home, who feel that no, but the teachers and, and other, both teachers and other kids have rejected them, it's really hard to hold on to for another moment that feeling that uh, life isn't worthwhile anymore. Yeah. And so these are the factors. If the symptoms of ADHD have to be measured well, of course, but home environments, peer relationships, continuing academic problems, and the girl's self-image are part of a complete assessment, too. What's the best way to get at the uh, the peer, at least finding out whether the peer image, peer rejection, uh, is yeah. it to ask the girl, do you feel like you aren't in the in crowd or uh, hard yeah, time? This is you know, a, a in elementary question. school, you talk about hard time making friends. Well, that's not maybe the question to ask in seventh grade. No, it's not. And for most people, number one, have a sort of self-serving bias. You don't want to admit that you've yep. got problems. It's always other people. So that may be particularly true, number two, for people with ADHD. And number three, the best ways to do this are the ways that research investigators like me and my team can do. Create a summer camp program where you've gotten consent from families, and you can ask kids confidentially about their peer relationships. It's really better to ask peers rather than kids themselves because kids yeah. can be somewhat defensive or not quite realize the hot water they're in. During middle school, uh, there are some very brief teacher questionnaires that get at the teacher's estimate of what proportion of the kid's classmates accept or reject him or her, and those are Boy. just about as good as getting... Yeah, yeah. Uh, asking the middle school kids themselves, which takes kind of an act of God and a, and a ton of funds to do. Yeah. So you want to be, I mean, the, the word on the street among developmental researchers is you've got to be multi-method. You've got to ask yep. parents. You've got to ask teachers. You've got to ask kids themselves. And if you get a chance to ask peers, and certainly if you're assessing an adult with ADHD, uh, asking relationship partners, employers, in a sensitive, confidential yeah. way, gives you a lot more data than just asking the individual herself or himself. Yeah, certainly the the teacher estimates. Uh, I think you're exactly right. Teachers have a sense of yep. what's going on. 
um, and I think middle school teachers particularly because they know that's an issue then. Um, yeah. So are there standardized um, questionnaires or surveys to uh, use for teachers or is it just well, ask a few questions a and see? Yeah, there's there's a lot of standardized ADHD checklists for right, parents and right. teachers and for young adults. Um, there are many fewer that sensitively ask teachers about peer relationships. If yeah. anybody out there is interested, contact me via my website and email, uh, which you'll I think uh, maybe can see in addition to this broadcast, and I can mm -hmm. send out some of the the more researcher uh, savvy measures that people use for these. Yeah, that that I think would even. I mean, I think parents probably pick up on it, but they may look more at um, kind of give the sense of what's wrong with you. Um, and certainly you know, some girls may be more in tune with sports. They're out in sports teams, so they're going to develop those relationships um, yeah. there. But girls who are not into sports and into uh, things like maybe drama or music or drawing and they're staying at home um, yep. or social media and they're they uh, and I see some girls that oh yeah I'm talking to my friends no you're not you're pushing a piece of plastic and typing but it's not the same as interacting with someone um, and that of course that's more widespread problem than uh, just with girls it, it's, but, I'm just going to comment on that last point briefly I mean this all parents are, of course, concerned now about the social media world and is it eroding real friendships and relationships and et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So uh, some interesting research just to summarize briefly is if you have good real relationships and you're using social media to enhance those, they may be good enhancers. If yeah. you're lacking good real relationships and you're desperately seeking such through social media, it's going to add to your feelings of loneliness and despair and, and, and depression. So sure, social sure. media give us and take us away, but it's not a substitute for uh, real-world, real-life contact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're looking at the evaluation, which uh, certainly a lot of clinicians don't have time to do in a primary care practice. Yeah. Um, and maybe a teacher or a clinician is going to suggest, you know, it might have more psychological uh, approach, but that often is, gee, you're depressed, let's talk about all the depression things, and a uh, therapist or counselor may not get uh, that much more into it. Certainly a full-scale neuropsych evaluation might, but not yep. many people want to put $3,000 into it. Um, three, 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 three thousand and rising. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Um, well, I think the uh, as usual kind of thing that happens with uh, these podcasts is there's a lot more to talk about, and we don't have anywhere near the time to get into the kinds of treatments that are going to help girls. Many of them help boys as well, but more specific emphasis on uh, looking at things for for girls. Um, yeah, I, so I mean, this is a, a whole other topic that I hope we could dive back into at some yep. point. Uh, yeah, we I know that boys and girls 
tend to respond to medications at about the same rates, but medication alone, just the headline is, is rarely a sufficient treatment for ADHD. Oh, absolutely. Lots to elaborate on that point. Yeah, absolutely. You have to have the sleep and exercise parts of it, but then also strategies of um, having a planner, actually looking at the planner. What a novel idea. Um, That's right. <laughs> so I think in uh, kind of summary, um, there are definitely differences in the way girls show ADHD, and it may be more hidden than with boys. Um, there are factors of uh, things at home, not the fault of parents, but the way um, girls get messages and parents try to help. Um, and the peer um, relationships and certainly any physical or sexual or emotional neglect um, factors are going to be really high in that. Um, so absolutely, yeah. This I think the the takeaway is that it's multidimensional, and you need a multimodal, multi-method uh, kind of evaluation. Um, so we will continue at some point, hopefully in the near future, looking at, all right, we have the results of evaluation. Where do we go from here? Yeah. Well, what's the intervention path that's going to be most helpful for my kid, my partner, my family member, myself, exactly? Right. So um, in wrapping up, my guest has been Dr. Steve Hinshaw, who is a professor of psychology at Berkeley and psychiatry at UC San Francisco. He has authored a number of books and his most, in my opinion, most important contribution to the ADHD field is the longitudinal study of girls with ADHD that is going on 16 years and counting. Steve, great to have you on the show and we'll look forward to putting together a second one. Thanks for your probing questions, and I hope to be back. Thanks so much. Great. This is Dr. David Pomeroy signing off for ADHD Focus, and we hope you'll stay tuned and join us for the next episode. Mm -hmm.